0: of the Bible, and we went from a very serious story last Sunday morning, and here we come back to, uh, to uh, the narrative, to the story, the kinds of stories that we probably associate with the Old Testament, and uh, a little more, we might feel a little more of a happy uh, story, Genesis 35, but uh, let's begin reading together at verse 1. God said to Jacob, rise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, and he called its name Alon-Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram, and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar. In the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, meaning the house of God. Then, he, then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephra, uh, uh, from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him uh, Benjamin, ben So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And all of God's people say to these words, Amen. Well, it's amazing for us uh, to see how God leads us in our own journey called life. And be able to recount, to look back uh, on, our, on our years, whether we're kids this morning or whether we're uh, up there in age, to recount all the twists and turns that we have experienced, lived, all the unexpected encounters that we have uh, had, all the good times, all the bad times, all the ups, all the downs, all the joys and all the sorrows. But yet, as Christians, we can look back upon our lives, and we can see that winding path that we have taken, and we can see the hand of God in all of it. We can see what we've been calling his invisible hand. Uh, we call that his providence in theological terms. God's providence uh, is his, uh, his, his uh, almighty and ever-present power with us. That God is almighty, and so he, he, twi- uh, he guides us in all the twists and turns. Uh, he even shapes the path upon which we move But he's also ever-present with us. He's never far from us. He's always near to us. Uh, He's with us always, as Jesus said, till the close or the end of the age. And so as you and I are here this morning, we can look upon our lives, we can think about all the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows, and we can see the hand of God in all of it. In the same way here with Jacob. Our sermon text, uh, uh, Genesis 35 Uh, I've entitled Jacob's Journey, uh, as he continues from Shechem to Mamre, uh, where he finds his father Isaac, as he's left him some many decades before. Uh, And so Genesis 35 ends the main narrative of both Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, we'll we'll see again uh, towards the end. Uh, He reappears, but uh, we move now into the story, uh, eventually the story, next Lord's that we pray, uh, of Joseph. Here in chapter 35, we've got a summary of all that God has done on Jacob's journey. Not just from that place called Padanaram, but to Bethel. And everywhere in between those two points, where God first met him at Bethel as he journeyed to Padanaram Aram to find a wife and was there for many decades, for 20 years. Uh, And now as he makes his way back to that house of God. And as we think about Jacob's journey here, uh, we, we might say uh, in more correct terms that this is the Lord's leading of Jacob. Yes, it's Jacob's journey, and yes, you and I have a life to live, and uh, we can describe that as our life, what happened to me, what happened to us, what I did, uh, what I didn't do, uh, the things that I'm proud of, the things that I uh, wish I had done, but ultimately our lives are the lives that God uh, has led us in. So here's the story of the Lord's leading Of Jacob, it's a story of God's actions with him, and so maybe hear the Spirit speak to us this morning in these uh, inspired pages and lead us and guide us as well. I want you to see here, first of all, uh, the Lord's providence. Uh, I've been mentioning this many times throughout these stories, these these narratives of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That we see God here, and uh, we we have the story of Jacob, but we have the story of God. What is God doing? Uh, in the narrative. As we read the Bibles, we also want to think about uh, how Jesus taught his disciples, and he even rebuked the Pharisees for missing this point, that uh, that, that they, the scriptures, testify of him. Uh, What is Jesus doing before he comes to this earth? What is the Son of God doing in the days of the patriarchs? And so here's the Lord's providence. Here's God's guidance. Here is the presence of God with his People, with his children, with this particular child, Jacob. So we should be struck here by God's presence, by God's providence. Uh, we saw in chapter 34 last Sunday a story that was full of godlessness. Godlessness. We saw the sons of Shechem rape the, uh, rape the sister of the patriarchs, Dinah, and we saw the father, Jacob, do nothing about it. The sons, with their righteous indignation, leading them, though, into sin to murder. We thought especially about how the fact that Levi, the, tr- the, the, the line and the, the tribe of the ancient priests to come, who would sacrifice animals for the sins of the people themselves, in Levi, were committing sin the sin of murder. We go from a godless chapter, a real low point in the story of the patriarchs, to a chapter that's full of God. Full of God. God is the one who's leading and guiding. God is the one who's who's speaking here. God is the one who is present with Jacob. And so God speaks to Jacob just outside of. The Canaanite city of Shechem, where we left off last Sunday. And he says there in verse 1, arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there. Notice the verbs that, that the Lord is commanding him to do. Arise, go up, dwell. We'll come back to the rest of this uh, just a moment here. But, but But notice the guiding hand of God. The invisible hand of God leading and guiding and governing the whole life and story of Jacob. As he'd left his father's house because he was afraid of his brother Esau putting him to death for all of his tricks, his deceptions, his lies. In Genesis 28, God met Jacob there, and he called it Bethel, the house of God, the gate of heaven. Arise, God says now in chapter 35. Go up to Bethel. Again, That city, that place where you had laid your head upon a rock and you saw me and I wrestled with you all night. Go back. Go there and dwell. But once again, we see the seeming hypocrisy, the the contradictory nature of who Jacob is in our story. Again, in chapter 34, the story just previous to this, we saw Jacob's sins laid bare. We saw who he was. He set up his camp for his wives, his concubines, his sons, and we come to find out at least one daughter, Dinah. He set up he set up their camp just a stones throw away from the city of Shechem. He allowed his young daughter to go unaccompanied to a land that was known for its sexual licentiousness. What happens in Shechem stays in Shechem, right? She goes there just to to see, we we are told, to see the, the women of the land. And she's violently taken advantage of, she's raped by a sexual predator. Jacob did nothing about it. He did nothing about his own daughter being raped, and he did nothing about his own sons who desecrated the holy sign and seal of. Circumcision that was meant to set them apart as the holy people of God. And his sons take that sign and they use it as a way to, to, to make a false covenant with the Shechemites, these Canaanites, and say, well, if you get circumcised like us, we can marry your women and you can marry ours. And they, they all undergo circumcision. And the third day when, they're, when, when, when they were feeling sore... And they were drinking to, take, to dull the pain. They murdered them all in their shake of doing nothing. And so we go to, from, from, from that to this. But now we read in our story this morning that as he goes to Bethel, he, he says that he's going to make an altar there. Notice in verse 3. To the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. You see, one of the things that that we've been seeing, and I want to impress upon us again here, is that Jacob is a true picture of a believer just like you and me. He's committed great sin, but he believes God. He struggles, we have seen, with faith, but yet he has faith. We see him fall, but yet we see the Lord raise him up. And so we we, we describe ourselves as Christians, in theological terms, as being simultaneously justified, yet still sinful. That's who Jacob is. That's who Jacob is. Again, we can can always look at these patriarchs as these holy men that, that walks... Uh, who walked on water, who, who floated on clouds, and who never sinned, who always loved God and always loved their neighbor as themselves. And we can miss the comfort that God saves sinners. He is simultaneously both justified and sinner. Paul tells you and me in the New Testament that God justifies The ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. And despite his sins, God leads him. God is present with him. Despite your and my sins, it's God who's with us. It's Jesus Christ who has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. It's the Lord who says to us as justified pilgrims walking through this world like a desert land, a wilderness. It's Jesus who says, I will never leave you and forsake you. I am with you always till the end of the age. Who promises us as a congregation, as a church, to walk amongst us, us as a lampstand, to walk amongst us, as Revelation describes. To live and to move and have his being amongst us in his perfection, in his grace, and in his glory. To be in our presence. Yes, you and I are sinners, but yes, you and I are justified who come to Jesus Christ by faith this morning. And the Lord is with us. God is present with us. Do you believe that? That God is present with us. We we can we can as reform people, we can we can you can we can use all the right stuff. We can say, Yeah, you know, I am justified and, and, and a sinner. And then that's the end of it. Sort of, you know, wash your hands clean and say, well, I got the right theology. God is present with you. God, the triune God, the God who's made everything, the God who needs nothing, who is high and lifted up, who is holy, 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 that God walks with us, lives with us, is present with us. And how easy it is for us to forget that, that God is present with us walking and living with us. And so here's Jacob, this sinner, yet the saved sinner, struggling, yet justified, who at times walks away from God, yet there is God, and he confesses, he confesses as he, as he wants to build this altar to the God who not only answers me in the day of my distress, the God who answers prayers, but the God who has been with me wherever I have gone. He's present. And you see this, again, illustrated in verse 5. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. That was Jacob's big fear, wasn't it? Look, Look in chapter 34 at verse 30. from last last week. He was afraid when he said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So again... Like he was afraid of his brother Esau way back when. In the same way, he is still afraid. But yet here, here he is. And God has caused that fear to dissipate as he causes fear to fall upon all his surrounding neighbors and his enemies, that God is going to protect him. That God is going to protect him. The presence of God with him there's one of our questions in our Heidelberg Catechism that that talks about God's providence, his almighty and everywhere present power, uh, by which he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them and rules them that, that nothing can come upon us by chance, but yet all things come to us by the fatherly hand of Almighty God. And the next question, question 28, asks us, well, what's the benefit of knowing that? You know, what practical value does it have for me to know that God is present with me, turning all things to my good? And part of the answer of question 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism tells us this, is that for the future, knowing that God is almighty and he is present with me, the benefit of that is that for the future, what's going to happen in the, in the future of my life, I can have good confidence in our, my faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his, hand, uh, from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Jacob's coming to know that by experience. That God is so in control that he would not let the Canaanites even move out of their camps to attack Jacob, unless God said so. Again, the presence of God protecting him, giving him confidence. So why would God cause dread and fear so that Jacob could walk through the land and, and he could live? Think of, it, think of it like this. Besides the practical reality that he's learning by experience, the providence of God, just as you and I do, to know that God is, is with us and has been with us and always will be with us, and we can have confidence in him that, that, that nothing can separate us from that love. Why does God do this? Why is God present here in such a powerful way to protect Jacob from impending death? Do you realize that within the family of Jacob here, it's not just him who's traveling, it's him, his wives, uh, his concubines, all the children, the the 12 tribes of Israel. Do 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 you realize, you remember, I know you do, but as you read the story, remember, In this family of Jacob is a son, Judah, from whom someone's going to come. And if the Canaanites and the Perizzites and all these other enemies, if if God permits them to attack and to wipe out Jacob's family, who's not born? Jesus would never be born. God has made a promise that there would be a seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 that would crush the head of the serpent's seed. That promise must come true. And to make that promise true, God must cause fear upon Jacob's enemies to protect him so that that line of Judah would live. And here is then that, that rage of the serpent and the serpent seed are in those camps, in those towns, uh, in those places of the enemies. And they are just, they are, they're salivating like roaring lions as Jacob and his family walk through the land. They want to devour them. The devil wants Judah dead. But the gates of hell cannot prevail against God's promise. All the rage of the world, all the devil's inspiration surrounding Jacob, seeking to kill them for what they have done to Shechem, but yet here is God protecting them and protecting Judah to protect your salvation. This story happened thousands of years ago, but this story is about your salvation. And that providence of God that's leading Jacob here to Bethel, the house of God, is where he hears, secondly, the Lord's promise. And there at Bethel, the Lord would speak his promise, his gospel, once again. And where Jacob would respond to the promise in praise by building an altar. You see, God speaks in grace. Jacob responds with gratitude. What Bethel is going to be is a place of renewal of the covenant of grace that God has made and reaffirmed with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And it's all renewed at the original site where God revealed to Jacob that he would continue the promise to Abraham and Isaac through him. Now, because Jacob is, is being led to a holy meeting with God where this covenant would be renewed, he, he begins to respond to God in faith. He responds in gratitude, and he does so by preparing his whole house for this meeting with God. Notice how he does that, verse 2. Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, change your garments. Remember, they had stolen the little household gods from Laban's house and and, uh, uh, brought them with them into the promised land, and so now they have to rid themselves of these so-called gods, these these false gods. They have to put away those gods. They have to purify themselves, even changing their garments. And notice in verse 4, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods, and the rings in their ears. So well, that sounds strange. Does that mean that God doesn't allow women to wear jewelry? Is that what's being said here? No. Nose rings and earrings in these days were of, of gods, of idols. And so these earrings would have little deities, little, little gods that you would serve and worship, even ancestors that you would pray to. And so they get rid of all these idolatrous amulets and rings and so forth, uh, all, the, all the unholy plunder that Jacob's sons had taken from Shechem in chapter 34, they purged it all in the middle of their assembly. And so again, you see the contrast between chapter 34, which is a, a, a chapter of, of defilements. Dinah was defiled. Jacob and the whole all the tribes of Israel, all the sons of Israel, they were defiled with lies and, un, and unholy use of the sacrament of circumcision and by murder, lots of defilement, lots of sin. Chapter 35 is a chapter of purification. A chapter of purification. And you see what, 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 what God is commanding Jacob to then command all of his household to to do is to repent. To repent. They're going to meet with God at the house of God, Bethel. The place where God met and God spoke. The place where God is leading them to worship. And they're going to come before this great God and they have to prepare themselves to purify themselves. And the way to do that is by repentance. Repentance. Repentance, on the one hand, the the, the New Testament especially, describes it as a a change of mind. It's a change of mind from from one way of thinking to another. And so it's a a turnaround, right? Sort of an an internal 180-degree turn that you make in life. But there's also another uh, word in the New Testament used for repentance, which is in more of an outward expression. It's to turn away from idols to serve the living and the true God. It's not just a change of mind, but a change of life. And so here they, we, we have the outward expressions the lifestyle changes that they had to make that were external of what was supposed to be happening internally. That you are going to meet with God, Jacob is saying. He's going to come in our midst and speak again the promise of the gospel. Turn. Prepare yourselves. Get rid of all the foreign gods. Cleanse yourselves. Purify even your garments. To meet with this God. So they are called to repentance. We might also describe this as uh, an instance of uh, within the people of God of a revival. That's what a revival is. It's the repentance of God's people. It's an internal sorrow and recognition of sin and a turning from it. Not just an attitude change, but a life change. To be revived, to be refreshed by the presence of God, and to be renewed by His grace. Oftentimes we pray that as, as Christians, that God uh, that God would make great changes. And we pray that God would change you know, our, our, uh, the direction of our of our of our nation, of our of our world, change the hearts and the directions of our leaders and Change the direction of, of even the church as it sort of goes south uh, in its doctrinal commitments and how it serves God. And so we pray a lot of times for God to change and to do stuff. But you see, the, the principle that's being taught here is that, the, that any change, first of all, happens internally within your own heart as a sinner. God's not going to change the world unless the church is changed, first of all. And so to meet with God, they have to prepare themselves. And so he arrives at Luz, which he renames beth or he renamed beth back in chapter 28. And then God appeared again. God renewed his promise to Jacob that he made previously to him. God renewed the fact that Jacob's name had been changed to Israel, verse 10. And then he renewed his promise that through Jacob's family, like the sand of the sea and the stars of the air, that his family would increase and be blessed. It's amazing that when you read there in verses 11 through 12, uh, just how similar this is to what God the Lord had said to Father Abraham back in chapter number 17 When the Lord says there in verse 11, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply, that sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? Hasn't God said something like that before? Be fruitful and multiply. That's the, that's the command that God gave in the garden, isn't it? And so you have this recreational theme here, this renewal theme, this revival theme, to be fruitful and to multiply. And then he says, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. That's exactly what God said to Abraham. And so God renews not just the creational themes here, but he's also renewing the the gospel themes, the covenant of grace themes that he made to Father Abraham. And in that renewal, in that renewal, Well, it seemed at times that God had left Jacob. And he certainly must have felt that way. We saw him for 20 years working for wives with his father-in-law, Laban. Yet God was always there with him. God was always there. And here he is renewing. He's renewing what he promised to him in chapter 28. And he's renewing what he had promised to his father and to his grandfather many, many years before. And so there they are. They arrive and uh, they're at this place this house of god the place where god calls him to go the place where god had already spoken to him and where god had renewed his promise and his vows to him and his commitment to him and he's in the presence of god and he builds an altar pours on it a drink offering and oil to consecrate it to set it apart as a holy place he puts up a little stone pillar a monument to this, to to testify that god has met with us here Let me me, uh, apply this in terms of one way this is very significant for us as Christians is that Genesis 35 is is also a a wonderful picture to us of what true biblical worship is. Again, look at verse 1. What is worship? Worship is a thing that God initiates. God says to Jacob, Arise. Make an altar, verse 1. When we come to meet with God, sometimes we say, well, you know, we're going to church. We're going to church. As opposed to God is calling us to serve him. And so worship is a thing that God initiates. God is sovereign, isn't he? God is almighty. God is all powerful. God in his grace has reached out to us and granted us the gifts of repentance and faith. And even our even our worship continues to be God renewing himself towards us by initiating our service, our worship, our call. Secondly, this is also an example to us of what true true biblical worship is because worship is a holy event. And that means that we must be prepared. To meet with God. Again, we, we say to our kids, you know, it's time for church. We're going to church. Uh, we're going, you know, to, to do this and to do that. And that's true. We are going to church. But we're going to meet with God, first and foremost. You, we come here, kids, we come here to meet with God. And we've got to be ready for that. We've got to be ready for that in our minds, in our hearts, in our actions. Be prepared for that. The third way that this shows us what true biblical worship is is that this event here between the Lord and Jacob and and the people of God shows that worship is a time of renewal. It's a renewal. It's God renewing his covenants It's God renewing his promises to us. It's God renewing his commitment to us. That's why we, every single Sunday, in some way or another, we we read from God's word something that says to you and to me that God is holy and you are not. Lord, in your presence, no one is righteous. If we confess our sins, God is both righteous Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned and we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We come to meet with God because God calls us so that he might renew himself to us. That if we confess he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse, to justify and to sanctify, it's God who does the work. It's God who does this. Now, we respond in faith and repentance and, and in love and in hope and in joy and, and in fellowship, but it's God who initiates. It's God who renews. A fourth way that this shows us what worship is is that it's a dialogue. It's a dialogue in which God speaks and his people respond. God says arise. God says go. God says dwell. God says make an altar and so forth. The Lord renews the promise. Verse 11, verse 12. And it's Jacob who sets a pillar up, who builds an altar, who pours out offerings, who prays in response. Do you realize when we read the scriptures together, we, we read maybe responsively those verses at the beginning this morning, that that's God speaking to you and you're speaking back to God? Do you realize that when you pray those words, that we're praying those to God? That God is listening. That God is hearing those words in response. Do you realize that when we, when we read those words this morning, from, we read those words this morning from Jeremiah and, and the Gospel of Matthew, that it was God who was speaking to you, and that you were responding to Him. Thanks be to God. So God initiates worship. That means that we have to prepare ourselves for it. Because God is going to renew us in the gospel and we are going to respond in faith and hope and love. And that's the, one of the, that's the last thing to see here, just briefly, is that worship is a response. And our response is, is, is dedication, right? That pillar that he sets up, it's a dedication that God has met with him. And it's what we call invocation, calling upon God, praying to him. God, help me. Help my unbelief. Forgive me. Help me understand your word. Feed me with Christ's body and blood. Hear my praise that I seek to give to you from my heart with my lips. And all this is happening. This worship, this renewal. All this is happening in the context of Jacob's journey. In the middle of... His transitory life, we see that for ourselves here too. Jacob is journeying, and he learns that life is transitory. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies. Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, dies. Life is temporary, it's transitory. But yet we worship God in the middle of all that. This this morning it hit me, this this is the first Father's Day of my life that I don't have a dad. Life is transitory. Life is temporary. But yet we worship God in the middle of all that. God meets with us and renews us in that journey. We see Jacob here, he's worshiping God. Responding to God's call and God's initiation and God's renewal of his own grace right after what we saw in chapter thirty four and we see it here again Reuben, Jacob's firstborn son, his pride and joy has a sexual relationship with his father's concubine Bilha and that was probably why did he do that? Because in the context of the ancient Near East, this is probably, this was his way of trying to assert dominance, that he would be the son through whom the promise would come. He's doing exactly what, what Jacob did, right? Trying to, trying to steal something that, in Jacob's case, of course, God had made the promise, but Jacob, in his sinfulness, trying to steal, and he did. And then there's the death of Isaac. You see, worship—this renewal, this meeting with God, this responding to God and grace, uh, His grace in our gratitude—worship is like a refuge that we have during the journey in the wilderness. Worship is the place where we can come and find rest during the wandering of this life, during all the sorrows, all the sins. To meet with God is where we can find our anchor. Just as Jacob was called by God to arise, go up, and so forth, in the same way, in a greater way, now that the Lord Jesus Christ has come, the seed of Jacob, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, now that he has come, you and I are called to arise, To go up to a heavenly Jerusalem, to a heavenly sanctuary, to find refuge from life's tribulations and struggles, and to find true, lasting rest from our weariness in this sin-torn life. And you get to do that while we are on earth. We pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we get a little foretaste of that heavenly rest that heavenly city, that heavenly refuge and sanctuary. We get a little foretaste of that this morning. And so receive God's promise to you. Hear his call to you to come to him, to serve him, to worship him, to dedicate your life to him, to trust in him and in his providential guiding and trust the promise. Trust the promise that he is with you, with me to lead and to guide, to bless and to refresh, to renew through his means of words and sacraments to refresh us to everlasting life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray now that you would allow the words that we have heard with our ears to be so worked inwardly into our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning that we would constantly heed your call and respond to your words to come to arise and to go to the house of God and even as we meet here on earth in this transitory place it's in heaven where our souls are lifted up to you to be renewed and refreshed, that we might go back out into the world to serve you all the days of our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen.